0: Philippians chapter 1, verse number 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you direct us through these thoughts. May the Holy Spirit be in control of the preacher and every heart here. May we see Christ lifted high. May we see our responsibility before the Lord, give us the same relationship to the Savior that we see in the Apostle Paul, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Addicted but Not Ashamed, Addicted but Not Ashamed. The word addiction is found once in the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 16, verse number 15. In speaking about a particular family, Paul says, You know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. They have addicted themselves to the ministry, to the ministry of the saints. It's an interesting concept because ordinarily addictions are considered to be evil. We want to avoid them, but this is good. Also, addictions are not often directly chosen. We never hear, well, I decided today to become addicted to cocaine. Never have heard that. Usually addictions sneak up on their victims. A little marijuana, a little cocaine, and then we're into math. An occasional beer, a wine with a meal, and before we know it, we're alcoholics. Curiosity, pornography, sexual addiction, rape, prison. One right after another, till it reaches its conclusion. In Stephanus' case, their addiction was deliberate, it wasn't accidental. No. They chose to become addicted, and Paul expresses, or at least hints, at his pleasure. In that. Speaking of addicts, probably very few drug addicts would ever delight in saying, for me to live is fentanyl. For me to live is cocaine. But there are people who cannot wait to get out of class or to clock out from work and get home and once again get back into their favorite uh, opiate. It may not be long before their lives are consumed by their addiction. They become identified by their drug habit. Many in today's society, including Christians, might look on those people and shake their heads in disgust. We shouldn't be like that as children of God. Those folk need help. And we have a solution in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of those same people who shake their heads heads in disgust should also admit for them, to me to live is football. For me to live is the Mariners. For me to live is the Lakers or something like that. There are millions of people who are so obsessed with their favorite sports teams that they are consumed by thoughts of those teams. They know all the stats. They know the next four games that are coming up. They know the records of the last four games. They've got it all in their heads. They think about their sports team when they get up in the morning. They think about it when they go to bed and they even dream about it at night. Sometimes those dreams or those teams characterize the individual. They wear their shirts. They wear their hats and they speak about them all of the time. Similarly, But then, quite different, the Apostle Paul said, For to me, to live is Christ, the Lord Jesus. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I'd like us to consider that thought this morning. Just prior to that statement, Paul said, In nothing I shall be ashamed. But that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. To paraphrase verse number 20, verse number 21, he said, All that I have and all that I am are dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior. And whether I live or I die, I will never be ashamed to identify myself as addicted to him. Those are two powerful statements and they need to be examined. Our world would be turned upside down if 10% of professing Christians could really say that verse 21 characterized them. This is their verse. These thoughts not only should stir up the child of God, but, but this kind of statement, if true in us, should attract the attention of people around here who hate the things of the Lord. What's wrong with that person? Something strange about him. What is that lunatic saying? Paul, thou art beside thyself for all of this study and exercise and whatnot. What is so special about Christ that we should become addicted? Addicted to the point of actually dying under this addiction. Can someone overdose on Christ? Should someone mainline Christ into their heart? For me to live as Christ. What are you saying, Paul? Behind the thought, he was implying that Christ was the source of his life. That's behind the thought. I live because Christ has given me life. For nine months, there was a young woman living in Tarsus, Selechia, who carried in her womb an unborn baby. And then Saul was born. In that birth, a new life began, which was quite different from the, birth, from the life that he had for nine months. A new life began, which he didn't have before. So Tal of Tarsus grew, and he moved to Jerusalem. He was educated in Phariseeism. He became a shining light in uh, Judaism of their day. But then one day, Christ Jesus... Confronted him, knocked him to his knees, knocked his pride and self-righteousness out of him, and fell into the dust. Saul was born a second time. He was born again spiritually. And for a second time, a new life began in Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Over time, he changed his name from Saul to Paul, and he became known as Christ's apostle to the Gentiles. There is unborn life, and there is unregenerated physical life, and there is the gracious gift of God that we call eternal life, or the Bible describes as eternal life. A person may have all three of these forms of life, but most people only enjoy two, the first and second. The Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, This is the record that God hath given to us, some of us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God Hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. The Lord Jesus once said to a crowd of people in in the temple in Jerusalem, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And just prior to that, Jesus said to the majority of that crowd, some of you people don't believe me because ye are not of my sheep. The lesson is, there are people whom Christ calls his sheep, and to them, Christ gives eternal life. And there are others who do not have this life. In the same context, Jesus said, I am come that my sheep might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And that takes us into what Paul is saying here in Philippians. It was this kind of life to which Paul was referring. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When an unborn baby is murdered... Through a deliberate abortion, he is never given the opportunity to experience the joys and the challenges and the blessings of 70 years outside the womb. And when a person isn't born again, he will never experience the joy and the blessing of fellowship with the Heavenly Father. You must be born again. Paul was given that blessing of the third life. But he wasn't simply referring to its origination when he made this statement. For me to live is Christ. For him, Christ Jesus was the principal ingredient of his life. Christ Jesus was the substance of his life. Earlier I read, and I reread, verses 1 through 11, that we read just a moment ago. And as I did, something jumped out at me. That led me to read the introduction to other epistles that Paul wrote. And I found the same thing in most of them. I saw a pattern. Here in this Philippian letter, Paul speaks of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, seven times in the first 11 verses. He was a servant of Christ. He was writing to the saints in Christ. Grace comes from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Twice he refers to the day of Christ, the day of the glorification of Christ. He reveals his desire for Christ's blessing on these people to whom he's writing. And then he speaks of being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Christ Jesus. In his second paragraph, of which verse number 21 is a part, he speaks of Christ five more times. In 21 verses, he refers to the Lord Jesus 12 times. This is indicative of his addiction to the Lord. He was constantly thinking about Christ. The Lord Jesus occupied his every moment. Christ Jesus colored every thought that he had. He didn't just think about the Lord when he first woke up in the morning and said to himself, I need to serve the Lord today. And he didn't think about the Lord just when he was uh, getting ready for bed. Thank you, Lord, for being a blessing to me today. His life was filled with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, constantly, For me to live is Christ. This letter was being sent to those saints who are members of the church in Philippi, Macedonia. If there were children of God in that city who are not a part of that church, then most likely they were not going to hear what Paul had to say to these people. There are blessings and opportunities which God gives to the members of his churches which other saints, by their own choice, just don't get to enjoy. But that's not my point. Paul was writing to the saints of God which were in Jesus Christ. He too was one of those saints. A saint is not some super-Christian A saint is not a miracle worker. A saint is someone whom the Lord has saved and set apart to himself. It's a child of God. Different title. A saint is simply someone who's been born again and set apart for the Lord and his glory. Paul was a saint of God in Christ. But as we read a few minutes ago, He calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. He is a saint. But he calls himself a servant of the God of heaven. Now he was not just employed as a servant of God. He was totally occupied with serving his Savior. He woke every morning with a desire to hear how the Lord wanted him to serve that day. you want me to move to a new town? you want me to revisit this person and give to him the gospel? He was willing to be a bond slave of Christ 24 hours of every day, every day of the year. He was listening for the Lord's voice. He was watching for any uh, directions that a finger might make. From the Lord, so to speak. He was watching the eye of the Lord, which might have suggested that he should go here or go over there. As a servant of the Lord, simply put, his life was Christ, the Master. In reading his epistles, there are hints that Paul was not unfamiliar with the sports of his day. He talks about wrestling. He speaks about the rules involved in running a marathon. He knows these things, but he wasn't addicted to sports. He had no time for football. He had no time for football or basketball or, or any, anything else. His life was filled with the Lord Jesus. And in those periods when he had to take up secular employment, when he worked as a tent maker, he saw it as. The wish of his master. I'm just serving my Lord and, and making tents. His eye was upon the Lord. It was not upon the ledger. It was not upon the profit line. He was working because this is what the Lord wanted him to do. When he wrote a letter. When he had time to enjoy the fellowship of other saints. Other servants of God. It was with a desire to glorify his Savior. During his Christian lifetime, Paul spent many years in prison in various places. And when he had time on his hands, he occupied it by writing letters. When in Rome, he invited people into his uh, cell, into the house where he lived, so he could share Christ with them. He did what he could, even when he was in those certain periods of restfulness, or arrestedfulness, or whatever. Notice verse number eight. For God is my record. How greatly I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. When Paul thought about his, his friends and thought about his acquaintances, it was in the context of Jesus' love. His will. Paul was consumed by Christ. He was addicted to the Lord Jesus. His joy was in Christ. Continuing his thoughts about friends... This I pray, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. He yearned that others would become as addicted to the Lord as he was, and that they would continue to be until the Lord said, this is enough, your life is over in this world, or uh, the Lord establishes a new world for us. For to me to live is Christ. His life was Christ. His essence was his Savior. At the, at the time that he wrote this letter, he was in house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial as a servant of Jesus Christ. That's why he was there. He described his condition as being in bonds in Christ. Verse number 13. He didn't think of himself as being in Rome because the Jews hated him, which they did. He wasn't in Rome because Governor Festus wasn't man enough to set him free after that uh, meeting with Festus and Agrippa that we looked at last week. He was awaiting trial before Caesar because he was a willing and joyful servant of Christ. He was in bondage to the Lord Jesus. These weren't Rome's chains about his ankle. These were God's chains. Right. Christ's chains. He wasn't putting on a false face. This was not one of those uh, British stiff upper lip things. This was genuine surrender mm. with a smile on his face when he said, For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. He might have said, "For me, the joy of my life is Christ." Mm. Like the Ethiopian whom Philip led to the Savior, after he was born again, he went on his way rejoicing, rejoicing. He had no idea what was coming next. As we learned just a few minutes ago, we should be up front with people. This is not going to be smooth sailing all the way into heaven. There are going to be problems along the way. Paul was like the Philippian jailer. Someone who may have been listening to the reading of this letter when it finally reached Philippi. Just at the time that man thought his life was over, just as the jailer was getting ready to kill himself... Paul led him to the Christ of Calvary. And immediately, Acts tells us, he rejoiced believing in God for the first time in his life. There was joy in his life. He had the opportunity to experience joy from that moment on. And he is still enjoying that joy in the presence of the Savior today. I remember the evening when the Lord saved me. The day began like every other day. But then along about 7 o'clock or 7.30, the preaching of the gospel was making me miserable. Like the Philippian jailer, the weight of my sins began to crush the life out of my soul. I was not very happy. But two or three hours later, as the Lord enabled me to trust Christ as my Savior my Lord, I not only pillowed my head in peace, but I was probably the the happiest kid in North Glen, Colorado that night. I was a new creature in Christ. Most likely, neither of those two men, the Ethiopian or the Philippian, could explain the source of their joy any better than I could at that time. All I knew was I felt really pleased. I felt good. I don't know why. I've since learned from the Bible that the kingdom of God is one of righteousness and peace and joy. And to be a citizen of that kingdom, to be a servant of the Lord Jesus, just brings with it a a joy that can't be found anywhere else. I've since learned that part of the fruit of the Spirit is love. And joy and peace. And every child of God possesses this Holy Spirit. The Spirit possesses him. How much fruit shall we have? We can rejoice. We can choose not to rejoice. What do these things mean? They mean that Paul, in the midst of his prison sentences, possessed joy in the Lord Jesus. Jesus. These things mean that even though there was a thorn in Paul's flesh, whether it be poor eyesight or crippled body or residual pain, whatever, he could still rejoice. The saints in Acts 5 departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame in his name or for his name in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.10, After listing some of the problems and the trials that he had endured for the glory of Christ, he says, yet rejoicing. Doesn't matter how heavy these persecutions have been. I am still rejoicing. Peter said, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Now, when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad with exceeding joy. Why is it these could be rejoicing, and yet so many Christians are not as joyful as they could be. Why is that? The simple but unpopular answer is: for them, their day-to-day life was not Christ. The more their hearts are linked to the world, the more tenuous and fleeting their joy may be, becomes, not may become, just becomes. Some of you might be able to tell me, please don't. I don't know how many football teams there are in the NFL. But I do know that only one team won the championship, the Super Bowl, a couple of weeks ago. Only one. One. And millions of football fans had no joy in that particular team winning the Super Bowl. Do you remember the old poem? I don't know why it struck me, but it popped into my mind. Somewhere men are laughing. Somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Paul's joy was not linked to sports or his bank account or his, his success in climbing Mount Rainier. He had joy day after day, in rain or in sunshine, in the pulpit or in prison, because from the depths of his heart he could say, For me to live is Christ, and nothing is going to take Christ from me. Not only was the Savior the source of Paul's life and the substance of his day-to-day life, but Christ was the purpose and the end of his life as well. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There is a day on the calendar of God which we might describe as the day of Christ, Paul refers to it twice in his introduction. The first is in Philippians 1, six, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What good work are you referring to, Paul? It was the work of salvation through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The Lord had given eternal life to a bunch of unworthy children of Adam, and the resurrected Christ was the living guarantee of the eternal nature of that life. Christ, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them." Christ Jesus is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. It was in the light of Jesus' words in John 17 that Paul said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In John 17, the Lord Jesus prayed, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me Be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. The day of Christ. Paul grasped and claimed Jesus' prayer for him. I am soon to be with Christ, beholding him in all his magnificence. He lived in the light of the presence of Christ. For me to live is Christ. Paul lived for the honor of the Lord, but then he said, and to die is a gain. Modern medicine, with all its drugs, all its procedures, all its treatments, is both a blessing and in some ways a curse. Modern medicine, with all of its techniques, enables us to live through and throw off Diseases which killed our grandparents and great-grandparents. It's extending the average time of our second lives, the earthly life. But it has also warped our concept of death. It has given people a fear of death. And we have to put off that death Even though it means living a decade or two decades in absolute pain. But we will not die. And we keep taking this treatment and that medicine. It used to be a fact of which everyone was well aware that death is not very far away. And we need to live in the light of the fact that we may be dead tomorrow. It is not true for the unbeliever but for the Christians, to die is gain. Yes. No matter how much of this world you possess, no matter how you measure the blessings of your second life, death for a Christian is better than that. Is a good life three square meals a day and a warm bed at night? Heaven will have things better than this. Maybe a good life is measured by comfortable economics. There be no need of silver and gold in heaven. Maybe you weigh the blessings of life in good friends and family. We will have better friends in heaven and a family that will extend so far we may never, never meet everybody. To die is gain. In Revelation 14, John was in the midst of revelations about what's coming up. In verse number one, he said, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 people, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Then verse three, and they sung as it were a new song. And before the four beasts, before the throne, before the elders, no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. The new song, which is described there, is described elsewhere and given more fully. It's a song about salvation from sin in the Lord Jesus. And then as John looked on, the scene shifted from these who are rejoicing in salvation to verse number 10. These, the same, shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be, these people, shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image. And whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Day and night. And then a little twilight. Then come some of the most comforting words in the entire word of God. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, "Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Psalm 116:15 says, "Precious in the sight of the Lord." is the death of his saints. When God considers something precious, then we should consider it precious as well. Going back to Paul, he said, for me to live is Christ. And to die, that's gain. That's better. The other day in my reading... I found some material that uh, I thought I would set aside to put in the bulletin someday. And then later that afternoon, I got to thinking about this one quote, rather lengthy quote. And I thought, this is appropriate for the, the message. The author of the book that I was reading at the time spoke of a woman who was dying of cancer. He said, in her days of health, she had witnessed to the lost. And now she was brought low, waiting to die. A lost man who had high regard for her, but who did not understand her faith, sent her a message asking her to go see a particular faith doctor who reputedly could heal cancer. She was so weak that she could not reply, so she asked me to write down her words. This is her quote. I appreciate your kind interest in my welfare, and I pray that God will bless you for it. However, you do not understand. It's not important that I get well. It's only important that I do God's will. He has let me live for some purpose of his own wisdom. And it may be that he will heal me. But it may be that he wants me to die for some purpose still known only to him. Whatever he chooses, I must yield myself to his good pleasure. If faith will heal, I have faith. We will use every means of medical aid that God has provided. But the outcome is entirely with him. I would not try to deprive him of doing his own will what he wills. Should I get well of this disease? I must die at last of something else. Being healed is not the greatest thing in life. Being his is the greatest realization of any life. If I die I'm sure he will in my death perform his will just as much as he would in healing me As for my pain he'll supply grace for every hour in that it will reveal himself to me more tenderly While I suffer he will be able to show the world about me show the world about me that I still love and trust him And in that way my witness will be more convincing Meanwhile, I hope you and others will see how blessed it is to be in the hands of the one who will see to it that all things work together for good to them that love God. He will be with me every moment. I trust him fully, and I know his grace will be sufficient. Thank you again, and may God bless you. Why are so many Christians unable to say with joy, to die is gain. Ultimately, it's because the first part of this verse isn't true in their lives. They don't recognize and find that Christ is the source and the purpose and the joy of living. They, it may only be a lack of consideration. They just haven't thought about it. It may be a lack of faith on their part. But it ultimately is sin to some degree. For me to live is Christ. That's where we're supposed to be. They're still children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. They just don't possess the joy that ought to be theirs. On the other hand, if you are not a Christian, if Christ is not your life, you are in a dangerous place. Sooner than you can imagine, you are going to die and you are going to leave this second life. If you haven't received the Lord's eternal life, then you will face eternal death. You need the Savior. You need the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no coming to God except through Him. Again, I plead with you. Put your faith in Christ. Give up that life that's Hardly worth living. I won't say it's not worth living. But you need more than that. Repent before God. Humble yourself before the Lord. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on Calvary. And then you can go on to say with Paul, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Please stand.